so much for which uh, to be thankful. I want to amen uh, Steve's uh, announcement uh, between, regarding uh, Jonathan and Ashley and the family. Uh, Mary Nell and I had a chance to spend three or four hours. Uh, what I thought might be a couple of hour dinner uh, became, I don't know how long it was by the time uh, we and uh, the Weed Mullers finished, but uh, what a delight. Uh, and in addition to so many other uh, rich things in their background, uh, you saw Jonathan up here on the guitar. And Jonathan, I don't want to say too much, uh, but uh, a little bit of piano and a little mandolin and some other things uh, mixed in. So he brings uh, many gifts to us uh, as they, as a family, join us. Also, I, uh, Friday night, Marinelle and I experienced with delight uh, UPC's uh, Shakespeare Club Summer 2022 performance, and if you weren't here, you missed it. Um, thrilled on several levels, Marinelle and I were. Stephen Trafton's brief introduction of why we do this kind of thing. Loved what you said, Stephen, about uh, acting, a way of discipling our children to face other characters and their settings, to experience life, to learn others' viewpoints. Uh, that uh, we might uh, learn to understand and love others created by God and, and learning that all of life uh, is learning to compare and contrast God's story with our own story until we face the reality of whether we're cooperating with God's story or working against it. You didn't say all of that. You were a little more of a, an introduction, but it fits with what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. And uh, uh, and Pam loved your words, uh, applying the tempest to all of us as to how our story fits uh, together. Uh, second, we were thrilled with the kids' amazing work and performance. This was a begin on Monday, end on Friday with the play effort. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen anything done as well uh, in a week with such uh, creativity. Uh, Amy Onger's and Pam Russell's uh, directing work, uh, aided by a cast and supporting crew of thousands. Well, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But a cast of, what, 24 or so, and uh, 19, uh, and, and some, some in multiple parts, and, uh, and then a bunch more on the crew. Uh, it was a passel of our kids. You would have been proud, and uh, I hope that uh, you'll put it on your calendar. This was the second year. I hope you'll put it on your calendar next year and even use it as a an outreach for uh, other families. Uh, we are blessed beyond measure with uh, gifts and talents. So this morning I want us to see how uh, Psalm 100's five verses set a frame for the story that God is calling you to join whether you realize that what, that's what the psalm does or not, I hope by the end of our time you will see that. Helping you to discern if you're mainly cooperating with God in his story or too often still rebelling. Let's pray. Father, open us as we open your word. We would see Jesus more clearly because we pray and think and dream from his words and by your spirit. Amen. Psalm 100, God as creator and covenant maker, really is the anchor of our soul and the author of the ultimate story. Uh, if you've got your Bible or if you grabbed an outline at the door, I hope you did uh, in the foyer, 
uh, not too late to go out and grab one. I've laid out in a, a way that helps you understand it the whole psalm in the first heading on uh, the outline. Uh, let's read it aloud. You listen, I'll read. We won't try to read it all together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His hesed, His loyal love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This psalm wraps up a similar group of psalms that begin in Psalm 95. I'm not going to take the time to talk about how the flow of 95 through 100 uh, in the psalms fit together, but you can take a look on your own. Uh, The form of this psalm, if you look at how I've laid it out on the outline, uh, it's easiest if I just simply say to you, uh, uh, if if you put your hand to the right of the psalm uh, and then duplicate it in reverse, the same text on the right with opposite index, you would have an X. Uh, This type of psalm is often called a a chiasis form, is called a chiasmus. It's it's an X. It means the focus is in the middle at the crossing point, and everything before leads to it and everything after flows out of it. And in this particular psalm, uh, I've got some things in the the suggested study questions uh, uh, related to this. It's laid out in a way that... uh, Verses 1 and 5 tie together, verses 2 and 4 tie together, and verse 3 is at the center. What's verse 3 about? Who God is, both creator and covenant maker people gatherer. And verse 3 is foundational to the six actions that are called for for in verses 1 and 2. And in verse 4, make a joyful noise, serve Him, come into His presence, enter His gates with thanksgiving, give thanks, bless His name. And one other thing, in case you're not aware, one of the things I found that we don't do in a lot of books, I highly recommend that you do do it, is read the introduction. It's important even in the Bible. Uh, In the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, the NIV, uh, you will find in the introduction an explanation that the translators, every time in the Older Testament that the covenant name of God Uh, In English, consonants, because Hebrew is just consonants with vowels as markings. Uh, Every time you have Y-H-W-H, we sometimes pronounce it as Yahweh. Uh, It's that if you change the Y to a J, it's the consonants from from which we get the name Jehovah, which is not a biblical name, but uh, it's taking the vowels from Adonai, which means Lord, and putting them in Yahweh because uh, the Hebrews didn't want to sin against God by taking His name in vain, so they never said it. Every time they came to YHWH in the reading, to this day in most synagogues, they will say Adonai, not Yahweh, because they don't want to say the covenant name of the Lord. But if you look at this psalm, you'll see, and I have boldfaced them in small caps, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, you have the covenant name of God. It's 
emphasizing that this God who made everything, who is the shepherd of all, is none other than the God who has made himself known uniquely to Israel through Moses and through Abraham and ultimately to us through and everyone through Jesus, is the covenant-making God. It's a foundational psalm, and God calls you to shape your story around the story of who God is as creator and as king, shepherd, protector, provider for his people, whom he both makes, creates, and calls. And all those other verbs that call us in what we're to do are the framework for how we are to live out our story, acknowledging what verse 3 says to us. And everything I say this morning is going to be about whether or not uh, we are in tune with that which is the heart of the biblical story. That's the thread that runs through the whole sermon. I listened to a fascinating podcast this week, won't take the time to go into detail about it, but it was an interview with two scholars, a philosopher trained in Amsterdam but an American who focuses much not only on knowledge but especially on wisdom and how we have lost wisdom as we focus just on gaining knowledge and then we've even gone narrower and focused on data, on information. And we're flooded with data so much that we don't even know what knowledge is and what knowledge we need to learn, let alone to step back and know the story of life and find wisdom. And that's what the psalm calls us to. That's what the scripture calls us to. Kurt Thompson, one of the men on the podcast, uh, an MD who's a psychiatrist, uh, says this, one of the first things we, his psychiatry office, ask when someone comes into our office is, in what story do you believe you're living? In other words, as a medical doctor and psychiatrist who's operating from a God-centered worldview, he wants to find out who his clients see themselves as and what their personal story is so he can make sense of it and help them make sense of it and where that story as it's unfolding and they're choosing it is helping them or hurting them. Thompson says, I believe we cannot separate what we do with our brains and our relationship with and what we do with God. What's he talking about? Uh, He's talking about a fancy word that I learned about 10 years ago from my dear friend uh, Jim Hurley, who's head of the counseling department, marriage and family therapy department at uh, RTS Jackson, where I taught, and he was my next-door neighbor, and I knew him in Miami, and uh, he's just so smart, it's ridiculous. As a PhD in New Testament from Cambridge in England under C.F.D. Mull, and a second PhD in uh, marriage and family therapy that only one person out of the committee of five examining him for his dissertation even bothered coming to the examination. They said he could be teaching our courses. And Jim said one of the delightful things that we've been learning the last 20 years about the brain is what is called neuroplasticity. Let me make that simple. The way we live creates, recreates, shapes our brain structures. And the delight is when we've lived wrongly and made bad choices and hooked things together in bad ways, if we repent and change, the brain can change and repair itself. We're not stuck. And for him as a therapist, that, he says, is just an incredible thing that brings remarkable perspective on all kinds of difficulties that people's behavior and choices lead them into. I loved Kurt Thompson's statement, uh, and he's quoting others who said, there's no such thing as science, there are only scientists. 
That's profound. Because what it's saying is science seeks to discover things, to, to learn things, but it's scientists who have to interpret that. There is no such thing as science. It's constantly changing and, and moving as even scientists are understanding in new ways the connections between their theories and the way they look at the world and where things stand. In other words, even science is a story. Uh, Karl Popper, the great uh, a philosopher of science, I think I gave, him a quote, gave you a quotation from him last fall, uh, you know, basically talked about, you know, that reality that science changes when people change. And when a lot of men and women scientists die and some new ones come on, science changes. And it's not always logical. It's not always objective. Because have you noticed, science is always trying to create a bigger story than it can prove. Just like you and I are trying to do the same thing. Thompson says there's no clear dividing line between what's going on in our relationships and what is happening in our brains. And he notes that people largely change through telling their story to an empathetic listener who understands or they feel understands them, and that teller and listener both undergo a change in brain chemistry in their conversation. In other words, as we really get to know our neighbors, as we really love or hate our neighbors, we change. I think the Bible would tell you it's better to love your neighbors. You'll change better into better than if you hate your neighbors. The physical reality and the spiritual reality are not ultimately separate. So the psalmist frames for us the biblical story well. Remember what I said, the psalm centers in know that the Lord Yahweh, He is God. It is He who made us, and not we ourselves, some of the older translations read. The newer translations tend to translate it, and we are His. He made us, we are His. Both are legitimate. It's one little two-letter Hebrew word. I won't go into the Hebrew, but depending on how you mark the accents, you can go different ways with it, but they both mean the same thing. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And this anchor verse is framed by talking, singing, shouting joyfully to him because he's good. His covenant loyal love endures forever, his faithfulness to generations. Therefore, whatever we are doing, we are to serve him with gladness, coming into his presence with singing. So as we move on to our next main heading, our next point, I want to emphasize the significance of that by probing what happens to us if we don't praise Him, if we are not glad, if we are not thankful, if gratitude does not fill our hearts. That's why I titled the message either gratitude or resentment and maybe even revenge. If you don't choose gratitude, you're likely to move to resentment. And if you stick with resentment, individuals and families and subcultures can turn to revenge. Let's look at what Scripture and life tell us. Secondly, abandoning gladness, joy, thanksgiving. God's creatures fill their hearts with resentment and even with revenge. Late in Fyodor Dostoevsky's amazing novel, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, Dostoevsky displays penetrating insights into gratitude and resentment 
and revenge. If you've never read the Brothers Karamazov, it's long, but it's worth it. One of the best novels many, many people think that has ever been written. As the novel unfolds, Brother Ivan Karamazov reveals his deeply troubling views on human nature, on God and the devil. Chapter by chapter, Ivan becomes more and more disturbed. Alyosha, Ivan's younger brother, grows in concern for his brother and approaches him. And Alyosha's words leave an Ivan to grip him, lead Ivan to grip him, trembling and to cry out and accuse him, you have been in my room at night when he came. You've been in my room at night when he came. Alyosha fails to understand Ivan's words and Ivan howls back at him, do you not know about his visits to me? How did you find out? Later, when Ivan questions the man whom he thinks killed his and Alyosha's father, Ivan is gripped by fear that this unnamed visitor is in the room again. Dostoevsky soon reveals that it's the devil whom Ivan sees visiting in his room. Dressed as a Russian gentleman, no pitchfork, no red suit. Interspersing with his Russian French phrases and cultured speech. And this, whether in Ivan's mind or truly there, we don't know. We're not told. It's not the first time they've talked. And the devil now says to Ivan, listen closely. Here's what Dostoevsky has the devil say to Ivan. He wishes to be agreeable, but that he, the devil, is misunderstood. He's a slandered man. He begrudges people's not seeming to want to hear from him. And Dostoevsky has the devil defend his character with amazingly insightful words. I printed them on your outline. The devil says, my best emotions, such as gratitude, for example are formally forbidden me solely on account of my social position. Wow. Dostoevsky does not explain in the novel why he provides these particular words for the devil's mouth. But I hope many of you might know the scriptures well enough to figure it out. why Dostoevsky probed the reader with such provocative words. Uh, after all, what is the devil's social position in the scripture? I've given you a little chart on in the outline with two columns, one gratitude on the left and resentment and revenge on the right. This has got to be whirlwind or this would turn into three sermons and I don't want it to. But on the left, creation starts with Adam and Eve created for gratitude. God is their creator, their king, and their shepherd, their provider. The expectation is that they will be full of gratitude and praise, that they will do Psalm 100 the rest of their lives and spread it around the earth. But then the adversary, the Satan, comes on the scene, and what does he do? He who says in the brother's K that he slandered, slanders God, and said, did God really say this? Is God really like that? Did God really promise that? And he tells lies about God, and he tries to destroy God's plan and God's people. Resentment 
because he doesn't have a high enough place in God's creation. He's not satisfied with where he was born and what he's been given. He deserves more, and he doesn't want to have to earn it. He just expects it. And then we have Cain and Abel. And in Cain's birth, Eve says something interesting. She says, I have gotten a man. Starts out kind of proud. I have gotten a man. I had this baby man. She does add, with the help of the Lord. I mean, it's nice when we Christians say God helped us a little bit. I mean, we're blind and deaf and dumb and dead. Other than that, we just needed a little bit of help. (laughs) But when Abel is born, it's Abel who shows true gratitude. I think often we don't put the story together. Why was Cain's offering rejected and Abel's offering honored? It was because Cain worked the ground and he just grabbed some stuff from the ground and made an offering. But what did Abel do? He took of the firstborn of the flock. When you give God the firstborn, you don't know if you're going to have a secondborn, maybe. When you give your tithe at the beginning of the month and not the end of the month, you don't know how the end of the month's going to work out. You're trusting God, praising God, honoring God, and he gives of the fat portions of the offering. And so Cain is dishonored because he's dishonorable. He's off on the wrong track from the beginning. And so Cain is filled with resentment and turns away from God in anger. And even after being lovingly guided and warned about what anger is going to do to him, he chooses the anger anyway. And 4.16 in Genesis says he went away from the presence of the Lord. He ran from God's story. And then God graciously replaces Abel, who's been killed, with Seth. And Eve's response is really different. She says, God appointed to me, which sounds like the Hebrew for Seth. I didn't get him. God appointed him to me. I'm beginning to learn what I need to learn. And Seth has a son named Enosh, and the Bible says an interesting thing. It's not a throwaway line. It says, at that time, people began to walk with the Lord. Are you beginning to see? We're back to gratitude in Psalm 100. They're living it out. They're walking with the Lord because they realize everything they have has been given. And so they're people full of gratitude and praise. And then we get to the seventh from Adam through Seth. And it's the good Enoch. And what does it say about him? Enoch walked with God. And he walked with God so closely that God just took him <laughs> and let him walk with him in heaven. Didn't say died. Didn't say, it's, it's a great mystery, but it's a beautiful statement in the Hebrew. That he's full of gratitude. He's a Psalm 100 guy. But the seventh through Cain, do you know who that is? It's evil Lamech who fits in the revenge category. And in 4.23 and 24, Lamech cries, Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seven times seventy-sevenfold. And I think I alluded a couple of weeks ago that when Peter asks how often do we have to forgive, uh, many think that that's what Jesus is alluding to. You're reversing what Lamech did in his curse. 
you've got to forgive as much as he was full of resentment. This theme of gratitude versus revenge, resentment, runs straight through the Bible story. And it's in your life. You better face it. It's in my life. I better face it. Then I can, I can only say, say it. Just think about it. King David, the man of gratitude, the man who wrote the Psalms, and, and what's on both sides of him? Who's on both sides of him? King Saul, who turned to resentment because he didn't obey and God took the kingdom away from him. And Absalom, who didn't walk with the Lord and was sent away, and he comes back to steal the kingdom from David, his father. <coughs> and then there's rebellious Israel that tries to make God's kingdom their parochial own. Rejecting and killing the son God sends to check on his vineyard, the parable we haven't studied yet. All this fits in, and I've got to be quick, John 8. Jesus said to the crowd of his fellow Jews, if God were your father, they'd been claiming they didn't need to listen to him because God was their father. You would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. This is printed on your outline. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. We're back to Genesis. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Your father Abraham, Jesus says, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And there Jesus is revealing that he's not only God taking on flesh, but he's the eternally begotten, eternal son of the living God, co-equal, co-substantial, in absolute unity with his father. And his fellow Jews know it. We're going to talk about that next week, by the way, in the Trinity. But his fellow Jews know it, and they want to stone him because he dared to make such a claim. And so Jesus is the essential focus of our necessary gratitude and thankfulness before God. Without the work of God, the humbling of God, we don't see the need for the coming of God's Son. We're just like Jesus' fellow Jews. And they were upset because uh, they wanted a parochial kingdom. They didn't want to share it with the Gentiles, which Jesus told them he was going to do. And that was an abomination to them. How dare God include other ethnicities? Who does God think he is? Wait a minute. Hope you catch the irony of that statement. But that's really what they were thinking. And that's what we think when we don't make Psalm 100 verse 3 our story. That he is our creator and our maker and we are his. The sheep of his pasture. He's like the best of shepherds, except how do we even say that he's more than the best of shepherds when he's the eternal son of God who never was not? And we are like sheep. Well, wait a minute. He gets to be like a shepherd and we have to still be like sheep. Yeah, you got the point. There's that big a difference between 
human beings, God's creatures, and, and God. And how sad we are when we become resentful of our neediness, our brokenness, and when we become resentful of anyone who reminds us that we are as much or more to blame than others for much of where we're at. Before we move very quickly into the final section, I want to share one more discovery I had this week about, uh, or in the last couple of weeks, about gratitude centrality, and it's from a remarkable source. When's the last time you heard a preacher quote Friedrich Nietzsche in a positive way? <laughs> Douglas Murray has a wonderful new book, and in it, a section on gratitude, and uh, he was the one who reminded me, I've read Brothers Karamazov a couple of times of what I shared with you, but he also quotes Friedrich Nietzsche. Dostoevsky wrote, lived from 1821 to 1881, and Nietzsche from 1844 to 1900. And one of the great ironies is that Nietzsche was an ardent foe of nationalism, of anti-Semitism, of power politics, and yet Nietzsche's thinking fed fascism, Marxism, and the postmodern drift away from believing there's ultimate meaning. But listen uh, to this. Nietzsche saw that one of the great drivers of wanting to destroy more than praise and build up in society was resentment. What an insight. And he looked at resentment as being a sentiment that blames someone else for having what you or your group deserves more. Someone else having what you or your group thinks you deserve more. Nietzsche writes this, incredible words written in the 19th century. This plant, using the image of a plant growing resentment, thrives best amongst anarchists and anti-Semites today. So it flowers like it always has done, in secret, like a violet but with a different scent. And just as like always gives rise to like, it will come to no surprise, as no surprise, to find that regarding its coming, as so often before, uh, it tries to sanctify revenge with the term justice, as though justice were fundamentally simply a further development of the feeling of having been wronged, as if justice were just fundamentally a part of the feeling of having been wronged. And I've been wronged, therefore I deserve justice. And it's all about feelings. This is Nietzsche. And belatedly to legitimize with revenge emotional reactions in general, one and all. So much more to say, but got to get to and finish the last point. I want us to spend a few minutes looking way too quickly at one of the most cross-central, cross-centric stories in the Old Testament, Job. If you miss the beginning and the end, you miss what Job is really all about. Three, the cross-centered biblical story. Both Job and the greater than Job, Jesus, lead us to God the Creator and His loyal gospel love. Job begins uh, with a Satan, an accuser. That's what the word Satan means showing up on the scene. It's much like Genesis. I mean, where did the serpent come from? Moses doesn't tell us. But God tells us there he was. And in Job, God tells us there he was. And the Satan slanders Job, saying Job only praises God because God's blessed him. And Job is so severely tested 
that after the second bunch of tests, Job's wife finally speaks out. She says to her husband, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Boy, Mary, now I'm so thankful you're not like that. (laughs) And Job responds, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job says, I won't move to resentment. Even with all that's happened, I won't move to resentment because Psalm 100 verse 3 and verse 5, God is goodness itself. And even though I don't understand, though he slay me, I will trust him. So chapters 3 through 41 contain the speeches of Job, his three friends, finally of young Elihu, and then in chapter 38, a few chapters of God speaking, and then the ending comes in Job 42. Told you we're going to go through Job quickly. And this I printed the first part of on your outline, Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord after the Lord had rebuked him and said, I know that you can do all things. And this could be your prayer, my prayer. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In quotations, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That was, those were words God spoke to Job in chapter 38, verse 2. Therefore, I have uttered, Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job is saying, You know, I still hold to most of what I said, but boy, I didn't know how stupid I was. But I wanted to honor you, and I've kept trusting you. Verse 4, hear and I will speak, in quotations. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's God to Job in 38.3 and 47. So Job's repeating what God said. And his response to God, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Because God has come close to Job and helped him understand some of the things he didn't understand. And and in response, Job trusts God even more and humbles himself even more. And I didn't have room to print it and leave you any room to write. But let me read verses 7. Uh, through nine that follow. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, one of the three friends, God speaking, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So God interprets the book for us. Job had a lot to learn, but what Job was saying about God was true, except for what he couldn't know about God unless God revealed more of himself to him. And so God says to Eliphaz, now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job, whom I'm making your priest, by the way, is what he's doing, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept Job's prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Do you notice he says it twice? That means better get this. 
So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Do you see what happened? Don't forget we're on Psalm 100. When Job chose not to turn to resentment and not to seek revenge against his friends, who were his enemies in some ways, but instead to forgive them, to have such gratitude to God for his grace to him that he's going to have gratitude even to his enemies, then and only then when Job prays for his friends, does God forgive his friends. If you haven't picked up on it, it sounds a lot like Jesus. And that's why I've used the phrase already that there's Job and the greater than Job, Jesus. And in verse 10, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Get this and we're almost done. Jesus teaches his disciples what's taught here, that calamity does not always equal judgment. Learn that lesson. Your accusers will often say that your calamity is because you've done something wrong. Sometimes you have. Better look at that. Better face it. I have to face it all the time. The older I get, the accumulation of the fruit of my stupidity just continues to amaze me. I mean, if I told you some of it, you wouldn't want me up here. But calamity doesn't always equal judgment. And that's a lesson needed for wisdom. Calamity befalls us for a lot of different reasons. It is the fruit of our own sin sometimes. We must be contrite. But sometimes it says a mentor of mine relates when pagans get cancer, Christians get cancer too. Believers are not exempt from the corruption of the world. And so unbelievers get sick and believers get sick. And don't buy the theology, bad theology, that if we just had enough faith, we wouldn't get sick. That is not what the New Testament teaches. There will be a day when full healing will come. But it's not the lack of faith that keeps it from coming now. Scripture is eminently clear. But as 1 Peter teaches us, believers are to handle sickness and death differently than those who have no hope. And we get to be witnesses as Job was a witness. But I, like Job, have complained and argued with God a lot as a pastor. I spent half of a funeral meditation arguing with God about why he took Mary Nell, my dear friend, Gwen Oline, to heaven. I still don't understand. Best evangelist I've ever had in a church I've served. Led so many people to Christ with the cancer that she had that was just like Joy Davidson Lewis, C.S. Lewis's wife's. She was amazing. Her agnostic Eastern European-born doctor said to Larry and me in the room where she died, he said to Larry, he said, she's the most loving woman I've ever met in my life. And at first he laughed at her. He thought she was crazy because she would celebrate people visiting her in the hospital, and take their pictures and weave them into God's story 
And she led person to person after Christ. I could go on and on, and I can't. Week before last, I talked to one of my dearest, dearest friends. He just got diagnosed with ALS. Been yelling at God for a month. And praying for my brother John. That he'll be a Psalm 100 guy till his dying day. And that so will I. God owes us nothing. Isn't it amazing what he's like even to his enemies? He offers a covenant of steadfast love that lasts forever. And yet he alone, his person, will and goodness are the definer of what is good. He is the only God and Jesus is the only Savior, the only one worth following. And it's not surprising that Jesus is followed by the most ethnically, racially diverse crowd that has ever followed anybody on the face of the earth. Wipe from your mind this idea of whiteness in the church. And it's, it's good news, it's the success of our missions, that there are more Christians everywhere else than in the West now. And it's going to be more and more that way. Praise God. We were never the center of it. We just, like the Jews, sometimes thought we were the center. And Jesus said to his fellow Jews, I just started with you, but I told you I wasn't going to finish just with you. Aren't you glad that the risen and ascended Son, the perfect God-man ruling from heaven, didn't choose to become resentful, taking immediate revenge on all his enemies when he was resurrected? Hebrews 2. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. Next week, the triunity of God. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Psalm 100, being acted out. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The eternal Son incarnate says to the Father. He who had no sin suffered for us and still trusted and praised his Father as he sat down on his throne at the Father's right hand and opened the gates of heaven, the presence of God for all who would come. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, I need you. And I need my brothers and sisters, Christ's other smelly, stumbling sheep who walk alongside me. I need them more than I've ever been willing to admit. So, dear God and Father, use even today my stumbling words from my unclean mouth to shout your praise. Enable me to believe even more how good and trustworthy are you and your ways. Reshape my heart and my brain so I praise you more and resent you less. And kill my resentment toward others, even and maybe especially when I think they deserve to be resented. I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve your grace. But Jesus, you bring me and my brothers and sisters mercy 
and grace and so much more. Fill us with gratitude. Amen. Stand and sing and respond.